Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for, for joining us for one of the closing events for the LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival, which has been going on all week. I certainly hope that you have been able to take advantage of the wide range of activities that have been going on. I'm Sheila Kavanaugh. I'm the Fulbright Global Shakespeare uh, Distinguished Chair this year, which Global Shakespeare is shared between Queen Mary, uh, London, and the University of Warwick. We have a master's program in Global Shakespeare, so a lot of the issues that we'll be talking about today are relative to the things that relevant to the things that the students are studying. I'm also founding director of the World Shakespeare Project, which uses video conferencing in order to connect arts practitioners, faculty, and students between all the continents. The National Science Foundation gave me access to Antarctica, which was very exciting. So, um, so there's a lot of, of interest in global Shakespeare right now, so I'm glad that you're all here this evening to hear our speakers. Tonight's event is one of the many that's taking place, as you may have noticed, all over the world to mark the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. London is jam-packed with activities for Shakespeare 400, so I hope you'll be taking advantage of that. This week's literary festival, with the theme Utopias, has been exploring the power of dreams and the imagination and the importance of idealism, dissidence, escapism, and nostalgia as well as looking at the importance of looking at the world in different ways, all of which are themes that resonate strongly with Shakespeare. Tonight, as befits a global institution like LSE, we'll be focusing on Shakespeare as a global phenomenon and how his work is received around the world. I'm very excited to be discussing this topic with Ben Crystal, Andrew Dixon, and Dr. Varja Pajwani. Each speaker is going to make some opening remarks on the topic, and then we'll have a discussion um, with questions from the audience. For those of you who use Twitter, the hashtag for today is hash LSE LitFest, but we would ask that you silence your cell phones so as not to disrupt the proceedings. After the event, Andrew and Ben will be Happy to sign copies of their new books, which are available from the um, festival bookstall. And there will also be um, a drinks reception to which you are all invited that is celebrating the closing night of the festival. And the drinks reception will be right outside. They seem to be putting out lots of glasses, plates, and musicians. So I think that this is the happening place to be tonight. I'd first want to invite Andrew Dixon to give his opening remarks. He's a writer and a critic, a former arts editor at The Guardian. He writes regularly for the newspaper and makes frequently, frequent appearances on the BBC. He's contributed to the New Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare. He's also an honorary fellow at Birkbeck, University of London. He'll be talking about his latest book, Worlds Elsewhere, Journeys Around Shakespeare's Globe. And one of the things about this book that I found personally very exciting is that the world of global Shakespeare has made real the idea that the world is shrinking. I sat on a plane reading Andrew's book and encountered many people that I know, including 
the man who gave me this bag, a very close friend of mine, Professor Amitava Roy, who um, Andrew quite rightly talks about his Falstaffian stature. And um, it was one of the, mo the moments where it really brought home to me how bringing the world together in communication really happens. I mean, Amitava has spent, spent a week staying at my house. So, and there were I many can't even imagine what that would be like. <laughs> <laughs> He's an astonishing, and I wish I could have written more about him, actually, but astonishing. Falstaffian doesn't even do, do him justice, I think, does it? He is, I mean, yeah. We, we, he sat me in a car park for an hour and a half just to talk about Shakespeare. We were on our own in the middle of this car park in Calcutta. No. And he was just so excited that I was there and so excited to talk Shakespeare. After a week in Atlanta, when um, he and my husband had bonded so much that they both started crying at the airport when he <laughs> was leaving. So <laughs> anyway, um, we look forward to hearing Andrew. Would you like to talk to us about Worlds Elsewhere? I shall. Thank you. I'm going to make a magical transformation to this side of the room. Aha, wonderful, it appears. And um, can everyone hear me? Maybe a bit close to this. You can, that's good. Um, thanks so much, Sheila. Very, very nice to, to be here and to see everyone here. Um, I'm just going to talk very briefly, really, about my book. Um, you know, if mystifyingly you haven't read it yet, and shame on you, obviously. Um, I'll just tell a, a few stories from it uh, and show some holiday snaps, basically. Um, this is Shakespeare Avenue in... Um, in, uh, in Johannesburg, uh, which is entirely random. I was on the way to an interview. I suddenly noticed that the street sign said Shakespeare, so I stopped, and the taxi driver was deeply confused uh, as I stood there for 50 minutes in the middle of a load of busy traffic trying to take photographs, but it seemed a kind of nice uh, coincidence somehow. And I suppose where my start of my book is that I think of, when we think of Shakespeare in this country, we tend to think of this kind of Shakespeare. Welcome to Warwickshire, Shakespeare's county. We think a bit of pubs called things like the Shakespeare. We think of the funerary monument in Stratford-upon-Avon where Shakespeare is buried. Um, and there's nothing wrong with those kinds of Shakespeare. That is very much what Shakespeare is about. Shakespeare did live and die in Stratford-upon-Avon in London. If you plotted his life on a map, he would roughly follow the M40 motorway corridor. Um, as far as we know, he never travelled abroad. Um, you can pretty much, if you want to, you know, in London these days, walk out his daily commute down from Bishopsgate, through the City of London, maybe via the bookstores at St Paul's, across the rivers of the Globe or to the Rose, and then back again. That's more or less the, the physical uh, containment of his life. But I wanted to get interested in another kind of Shakespeare, which is a Shakespeare that starts here. And actually, for me, it started at the World Shakespeare Festival in 2012. I don't know if anyone in this room went to the events. There are some nodding heads. Good. I don't know how you found it, but I found it astonishing and revelatory, actually, um, seeing all of these different companies from all of these different parts of the world turn up in London and to Stratford-upon-Avon and various other places with their own Shakespeare's in their own languages, in their own adaptations, things that we might not think of as Shakespeare exactly in this country because we are still rather obsessed with pubs called the Shakespeare and Shakespeare's Funeral Monument. Um, Shakespeare like this, which was a wonderful production of the Comedy of Errors that was done by um, an Af Ghani company, and they were called Ra Azab's Path to Hope. They came from Kabul. They brought a translation into Dari Persian of the Comedy of Errors, uh, and it was an astonishing event. Um, I found it 
incredibly moving, actually, to have this company who had come all of this way, who had one of the actors, her husband, had been killed because um, she dared perform on stage. Um, a lot of people had lived in exile or had fem- friends and family in exile. Families had been pulled apart. And yet it wasn't as simple as saying they were brought together by Shakespeare, but they somehow managed to make this play about exile and dispossession and travelling long distances to find yourself. It just gave it a completely new resonance, I thought, um, I don't speak Dari Persian. I had to follow the script on my knee. Um, but I thought this is a play that I didn't see before, actually. This is not just a comedy, um, people mistaking themselves and falling over and doing stupid things. Actually, it's a play about something much more deep. Um, this is another kind of Shakespeare I saw. It was a production of Titus Andronicus, done by a wonderful theatre company from Hong Kong called the Tang Shu Wing Theatre Group, translated into Cantonese, deeply stylized. I wasn't sure that it massively worked actually in some ways in the globe but it was just again something different something that hadn't I hadn't seen quite before not in Britain anyway um, and then it made me think that really what I wanted to do was try and follow some of these threads out into the world and visit some of these places where Shakespeare has ended up the problem is as of course you know is that Shakespeare is kind of everywhere I mean not quite everywhere but almost everywhere in so many different countries in so many different languages and I spent about a year actually kind of tearing my hair out trying to work out how on earth I was going to afford to, you know I really wanted to go to Russia to explore the story of Boris Pasternak translating the plays during the Second World War I was desperate to go to Sweden because someone had built an ice globe there turned out that it melted um, uh, all of these different places I wanted to go but eventually I, I kind of came up with the idea of well this is um, yes I'll come back to this I came up with a a sort of structure which is five different countries, essentially, or six countries, actually, in total. Um, I went through Germany, made a journey through through Germany. I went to the US. uh, I went to India, South Africa, and China. And the title, I just flicked past. I'm sure you know the quotation. This is the moment in the play in Coriolanus where he's turning his back on Rome and declaring that he's going to... uh, He's basically going to, to, to... find a new life somewhere else. He actually, he's having a bit of a hissy fit, really, um, at this point in the action. I didn't exactly want to have a hissy fit, but I did want to try and discover what worlds elsewhere might look like. Um, so I started travelling. Um, just very briefly, I'm just going to quickly run through some of the countries, and hopefully some of these things we can talk about in a bit more detail later. I made a journey from Gdansk in Poland, down to Weimar, then on to Munich, uh, and then I ended up in Berlin. And really the stories I was interested in there, Gdansk, um, as you may well know, English actors travelled on the continent, even within Shakespeare's own lifetime. Um, there's a story that gets recycled about Shakespeare in Sierra Leone. Have you heard this one, the idea of Hamlet being performed in Sierra Leone? Unfortunately, almost certainly not true. I mean, there is, or if it's not true, there is absolutely no evidence that I can find. I'm very happy to be gainsaid by anyone who knows more, but I could not find a single scrap of evidence for this story. However, it is absolutely true that Shakespearean actors were performing in Northern Europe, doing the trade routes up to the Baltic uh, through Germany, or of course Germany didn't exist at this stage, but through the princely states which had become Germany. Uh, and one of the places they visited was Gdansk. Um, and there was a wonderful professor, and one of the amazing people I met, numerous amazing people I met on my journeys, called Yeji Limon, who has taken it upon himself to build a theatre which is a replica, a kind of replica, of this theatre that was built there. It's basically the same size as the Fortune Theatre in London, and it was raised at some point in Gdansk between 1600 and 1612. No one exactly knows why, but almost certainly for English actors touring. And almost certainly they were doing Shakespeare's plays or adaptations of Shakespeare's plays. We might talk about adaptation later. This is the new theatre. It doesn't look very much like it, um, but I, in a way that chapter started and ended with that theatre because it was just being built as I was there, and then I, I went back 
18 months ago to see it open, which is an amazing thing. I also got very, very interested in, in the role of Shakespeare in German culture more generally from the Romantic era. Um, you know, it's often said, and I think it's probably true, that there are more performances of Shakespeare done in Germany every year than there are in the UK. Partly because actually there are so many local theatres and so many different places that um, that perform his work, but also because actually Goethe and um, and Schiller, uh, monument there in front of the National Theatre in Weimar, um, they were obsessed by Shakespeare and wrote a lot about Shakespeare, thought a lot about Shakespeare, and in a way people talk sometimes about Unser Shakespeare, the concept of Unser Shakespeare, our Shakespeare, the German Shakespeare. People sometimes talk about him, maybe with a little bit of embarrassment these days, about it being the third German classic, Goethe, Schiller, Shakespeare. Um, one of the dark ways in which that, that's a manuscript of uh, Goethe essay on Shakespeare visited the Deutsche Shakespeare Gesellschaft, the German Shakespeare Society, the world's oldest Shakespeare Society of its kind. Um, this is a production of Hamlet that was extremely popular in the Second World War. Um, one of the interesting and sort of strange things about that is, you know, the Nazis uh, used so much culture, and high culture in particular, to, for their own ends. One of the people they co-opted was Shakespeare. Shakespeare was the only, quote, enemy dramatist not to be banned during the Second World War. Because the argument ran, he was basically German, so you didn't really need to. Uh, and indeed became a point of contention. So you think, ev- of course, everyone thinks of Olivier's film of Henry V, filmed in 1944, dedicated to the people who were uh, about to invade Europe. Of course, the Germans had Shakespeare fighting on their side as well. Um, this is a man called Gustav Krudgens, an extremely unpleasant but very, very talented actor uh, who was Hamlet. And if you read the reviews of this, this production, it, it's astonishing because they keep saying it's so wonderful to find someone who's so vigorous. And, it's a, and I think the quote is, a hero who, knew, who knows exactly what he wants. And you're like, Hamlet who knows what he wants? <laughs> but somehow Hamlet became transformed in Nazi Germany to become that... Um, I then travelled to the States. Um, I began at the place we were just talking about backstage at the Folger Shakespeare Library. Oh, this is rather funny. A Shakespeare map of the U- USA featuring towns that actually exist. Um, it doesn't actually feature the one place which I think is actually named after Shakespeare. This is, these are just coincidental names, I think. Um, it's Shakespeare in New Mexico, which is named in honour of the playwright and renamed in 1871. Um, essentially, I made a journey from the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is, as you probably know, the world's largest Shakespearean archive. Astonishing thing also astonishing because it's, it's so symbolically embedded in American culture. It's right on the top of Capitol Hill. You can see the Capitol Tower behind there. It's opposite the uh, Supreme Court, next to the Library of Congress. And in, in this most symbolic of cities, you have Shakespeare symbolically embedded. And the main reason that Folger Library exists is because this is what it looks like inside, completely bonkers. Uh, you know, that on the outside, Art Deco, and then that on the inside. I nearly fell over when I walked in. Um, the main reason, the most interesting thing in some ways about the Folger Shakespeare Library is this, which is that is what 83 copies of the first folio look like, the core of the collection. Uh, this is kept behind a very, very, very thick steel door, yeah. and I had to uh, do a lot of begging and pleading in order to be able to see. This is a, a probably about, it's actually, I was going to say it's about $350 million worth of books. Actually, it, it's almost literary prices because if you put these on the market, the whole market would collapse, basically. The story of why there are 83 copies of an identical book in the vaults of the Folger is one we might perhaps talk about. I found it completely mystifying. Um, anyway, interesting to see them, though. Um, if, I mean, it's, it's, you get quite scared standing in front of something like that. Um, but I also got very, very interested in adaptations of Shakespeare that happened in the US in the 19th century particularly. Shakespeare became, implausibly enough, the most popular playwright on the frontier. Um, Shakespearean plays were toured across California and really everywhere 
in the West um, by travelling groups of actors, both from England and from the East Coast. This is uh, an illustration, an engraving of um, a group of actors travelling in, um, I think, in Florida in 1831. Uh, they were set upon by a band of Native Americans who then murdered two of the company uh, and then, in order to celebrate, took all the costumes out of the box in which they were carrying and disported themselves as Shakespearean heroes in order to celebrate. There are sort of all sorts of weird stories, trappers having boys read Shakespeare to them, um, these mad versions of Richard III that were put on in mining camps in the gold rush. Um, one of the places I visited was the Nevada Theatre, which is California's oldest working theatre. It goes all the way back to 1865, which in Californian terms is really ancient history. Um, and uh, Shakespeare was performed here, we know, um, and, uh, but again, sort of wonderfully irreverent versions of Shakespeare, things that are not kind of textually authentic, uh, they'd be adapted, they'd be altered, and Shakespeare was so obsessively loved in the Wild West um, that, yeah, this place opened. Uh, quickly zooming on, I went to India, which we were going to talk more about, so I'll, I'll let Varsha talk much more about that because you know much more than I do. Uh, but I made a journey from um, Mumbai on the west to Calcutta, then to Delhi. Uh, I, have people have, have people come across this movie, Shakespeare of Allah? Um, this is the kind of what people tend to think of when they think of Indian movies and Shakespeare. Actually, the stories I got interested in were the adaptations of Shakespeare that exist in Indian cinema. And people may well have, if you've seen this film, came out last year, year before, um, version of Hamlet by Vishal Bhardwaj. But there are hundreds of these things, hundreds of adaptations. Omkara, a version of Othello, again by Bhardwaj. Uh, Angur, amazing comedy from 1981, is that right? Gulzar, version of the Comedy of Errors yet again. And I guess I got really fascinated by the way that, A, there are almost certainly more versions of Indian stories on Shakespeare and on screen in, in India than Shakespearean stories on screen in India than there are anywhere else in the world. Um, but also the way that, again, these are not remotely authentic versions most of the time. There are some, and actually Omkara and Haida are, are, are much more sort of thought through as, as sort of Shakespearean projects. A lot of them are very, very free adaptations, going back all the way to Parsi Theatre in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, amalgams of different plays, you know, you get a bit of As You Like It stitched onto some Twelfth Night, and then there's a bit of from King Lear at the end just to finish it off. Or, you know, there's a version of Twelfth Night which is set in a... a the, the, instead of a shipwreck at the opening, there's a, there's a railway crash, wonderfully Indian idea. Um, all of these things are very, very free and interesting and imaginative ideas. Um, this is a version of Kun Kakun, Hamlet. Blood for blood, is that the translation, isn't it? Uh, which, alas, this film doesn't survive. Um, it's one of numerous silent films that were made. Almost certainly the more, more silent films made of Shakespeare than anywhere else in the world again. Um, I managed to find the pictures of it, but not see the film itself, unfortunately. Um, but I did manage to see this film, which is, I think, the oldest surviving Shakespearean Indian film. It's a version of Hamlet by Kishore Sahu. It's kind of a remake of the Olivier version a few years earlier. It's from 1954. Um, but actually, of course, it is also an adaptation. In some ways, a very free adaptation there are songs because it's a mainstream Bollywood movie um, and the script is kind of largely rewritten in lots of places um, and one of the most interesting things about it is the role of this woman, she's called Mala Sinha and she's a, if you, I think Indian men of a certain age, if you say the words Mala Sinha, a far away look will come into their eyes <laughs> I entirely understand looking at that photo um, she played Ophelia and the film is kind of recalibrated, one of the most interesting things about it is actually kind of recalibrated from her perspective actually, there are the whole additional scenes in there, you get a real sense of like what her story is, whereas Shakespeare kind of writes her out really in some ways. 
Sahu brings her back and Marlison brings her back. And I found out to my surprise that Marlison was not only alive, she still lives in Mumbai. And I managed eventually, after hanging around in a garden for quite a long time, that's a whole other story, uh, to get an interview with her. And that's what she looks like these days. And she, I played her some clips of the film that I'd recorded rather illegally on my phone. Um, and we watched them um, together. And it's the first time that she's seen the film since 1954 when she was 16. Um, so it was amazing to meet her. Uh, that's just in... Finishing is uh, Shakespeare's Sarani in Calcutta, road named after Shakespeare. Uh, quickly, we're through, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm overrunning, but I will finish quickly. Um, South Africa, I made a journey from um, Johannesburg to Durban and then down through the centre to Cape Town. Interested in several things, one of which is the story of this man, a guy called Solomon Pleike, who is the first translator of Shakespeare into, an, into a native African language. He was an astonishing man. Um, he was a linguist, he was a journalist, he was a translator, he was a politician, he was the founding general secretary of the organisation that became the ANC. Um, and he translated the Comedy of Errors and several other plays, not all of them survive. Uh, it's a story that I had not come across before and I think not enough people know about because he's a fully extraordinary man. Um, so I got very, very interested by him and went to, went to his home in the kind of rather sad little museum that's devoted to him. But also I got interested in this story as well, which you may well have come across, the Robin Island Shakespeare. Uh, Sonny Venkanatram... Um, was imprisoned on Robben Island, had a copy of Shakespeare. Various stories being told about this book. Um, again, perhaps a little bit of Shakespeare and exaggeration sometimes. Um, stories that it was smuggled onto Robben Island, absolutely not true. Stories that it was the only copy of Shakespeare on the island, also not true. Um, also stories that it was banned at various points, also not true. However, it is still very, very interesting because, of course, this is Robben Island, um, and thoroughly depressing and frightening does it look. Um, one of the men who signed Sonny's book is Mandela, and you see that passage there. And it was a fascinating and difficult story to explore because everyone has their own memories of what happened in Robben Island and everyone has their own perspective. Some people said to me that Shakespeare didn't matter at all, was completely irrelevant. Sonny felt that it was incredibly crucial to him and helped get him through his detention. Everyone has a different memory. Um, but it's an astonishingly powerful story nonetheless, I think. And the, the way that Mandela, who is such a was such a, a kind of canny and difficult and mysterious politician, chooses particularly this bit of, of Julius Caesar. Cowards die many times before the death. The valiant never taste of death but once. What is he talking about there? What is he referring to? Is he talking about his situation in the island? Is he talking about what it would, might, might be to be a political leader? What might happen to him afterwards? Is he talking about the risk of assassination? What's going on? Perhaps we can talk about those things. Um, but it was, yeah... Um, it was wonderful to visit, although I didn't, unfortunately, get to see the copy because by the time I got there, it had disappeared to the Folger yeah, library. Was it was, the <laughs> it was on, on display yeah. at the Folger. Uh, and then very quickly in closing, I made a journey through China, Beijing, Shanghai. I went to the uh, Asian Shakespeare Association conference, uh, the very first one in Taipei, in Taiwan, and then I finished in Hong Kong. I got there and thought, does anyone really know about Shakespeare in China? It's, he's such a kind of... It's so modern in so many ways. Shakespeare has only been really properly translated in China for the last hundred years or so. Someone handed me a copy of this magazine, which is the Chinese... It's called Life Week. It's like the equivalent of Time magazine in China. That is William Shakespeare on the cover, and a special issue for the 450th anniversary of his birth in 2014. Um, and various threads I was following here. One was a, the first translator of Shakespeare into you know, the complete works into Chinese, uh, into Mandarin, a man called Zhu Shanggao, who did so rather incredibly under Japanese gunfire during the siege of Shanghai in the Second World War. Um, he lost his translations twice. They were, they were destroyed by bombardment, uh, and he died of TB halfway through Henry V. But he managed to translate 
33, 34 of the plays, I think. Is that right? 33 and a half of the plays um, before dying at the age of 31 in an astonishing two years, um, working with no materials, with one dictionary, one dog-eared copy of the English dictionary and one dog-eared copy of the Oxford Shakespeare. And his, tr- his translations and the story of his life is, is now kind of a major part of kind of Shakespeare, Chinese Shakespearean folklore. But also um, I got interested in a much grimmer period of Chinese history, which is the Cultural Revolution, when Shakespeare, along with so much else, was banned. Um, I found, uh, this is an image of Madame Mao, Shakespeare's wife, and I don't know if anyone knows this, I didn't know this before I started researching the book, she used to be an actress back in the day. She played Nora in a doll's house in Shanghai in 1913. Um, but she seems that she, in particular, took exception to Shakespeare and their, their various Mao speeches which refer to someone who might be Shakespeare, and it seems that, that Shakespeare was a bit of an obsession somehow for various reasons. Anyway, I found a, in the archive of the Shanghai Drama Arts Centre this photograph, which is a production of Much Ado About Nothing that was performed in 1961. It was the, almost the last professional Shakespeare production in China to be seen before the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And this photo, which is from... 1979. It's exactly the same production with exactly the same actors wearing more or less exactly the same costumes on exactly the same set with the same director. I say the same actors, as many of the actors who had actually survived the Cultural Revolution. Um, it was decided in 1979 that Mao had been dead for three years that the way that they would bring Shakespeare back was to do a production of exactly the same play in exactly the same way almost as if nothing had happened. Astonishing story. Um, 18 years as if it sort of you know, disappeared. And the fact that they did much ado about nothing as well somehow I find incredibly moving. Um, in, trans- tra- in the translation they used, it, the title translates as looking for trouble in trivial matters. Uh, but I eventually managed to track down this guy who is that guy, Benedict. He's wearing a wig there and also um, blue contact lenses because that was very, very standard in Chinese productions of European plays until quite recently. I eventually managed to find him and... He, but he worked in a pig farm for 10 years um, because he wasn't permitted to act. He refused to perform for the, the regime, and we talked about Shakespeare. Um, yes, an astonishing man. Some people think of him as the Chinese equivalent of, of Laurence Olivier. Anyway, that's a very, very quick uh, globe-trotting tour, and that's my blog. I shall hand over. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's always nice at a talk like that when you can just say, and the book is available <laughs> outside if you want to hear more about these. So thank you. Um, next we have Dr. Varsha Pajwani. She teaches currently at Boston University, which is actually in London. So, you know, she epitomizes globalization. She's an honorary research associate at the University of York. She focuses on the way in which Shakespeare is deployed in the service of a diversity theater and films as well as publishing widely in leading international journals such as Shakespeare Survey and in forthcoming collections such as Shakespeare and in Indian Cinema and The Diverse Bard. She's won prestigious research grants from the Society of Theatre Research and from the Folger Shakespeare Library. 
In addition to her research, she is on the steering committee of the multi-grant winning project Indian Shakespeare's on Screen, which she will be telling us about. And this is, there's a lot going on this spring in London, but this conference on Indian Shakespeare's on Screen is something that I think you should all mark on your, in your diaries tonight. It's really going to be an extraordinary event, and I'm sure she will tell us why. Yes, Thank absolutely. you very much. So I'm going to begin with a shameless plug for this project, Indian Shakespeare's <laughs> on Screen. And uh, this project, which I'm co-organizing with Thea Buckley, who's there in the audience, um, Koel Chatterjee and Preeti Taneja examines the full influence of Shakespeare in Indian cinema and the way in which Indian cinema, in turn, has mobilized Shakespeare for a number of agendas. For one of our events... Um, we will be screening the Indian Shakespeare trilogy that you just heard about. So Makboo, which is a remake of Macbeth, Umkara, which is based on Othello, and Heather, which is an adaptation of Hamlet. We're going to screen that at the BFI South Bank. The dates are there, 29th and 30th of April, and I'm sure I'll see all of you there. Um, I say that this is a shameless plug, uh, but to be fair to myself, um, organizing this event has given rise, obviously, to a number of questions, and I'm sure Taya will agree with me on this. Um, a number of questions about consuming Shakespeare globally. Uh, and it is these questions that I want to share with you and um, ask you about. So Andy gave you all of this wonderful information, and now I want, I'm going to ask you questions and get that information back. Um, but first, to put things in context. So Shakespeare arrived in India um, under the colonial rule when T.B. Macaulay of enforced English education, uh, including the study of Shakespeare, as a means to undermine the development of Indian languages and literature. Ironically, however, when the colonial rule ended and the British started leaving, Shakespeare remained and mastered local languages, such as Gujarati, Bengali, Punjabi, Hindi, and Malayalam, because today Shakespeare speaks in all of these tongues on Indian screens as his plays are adapted, appropriated, and reinvented by Indian cinema. On this slide here are just a few of the recent Bollywood adaptations of Shakespeare. Um, and I'm just going to be talking about Bollywood, not Indian cinema, um, for that, attend our conference. Um, so these um, are, and by recent, I mean post-2001, okay? So that's how recent uh, all of these adaptations are, and there are more. So, for example, 10 ml Love is an adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream. 8 by 10 Tasvi reimagines Hamlet as a murder mystery thriller. And uh, Dilbode Hariyappa is um, a take on a Twelfth Night, um, and it's pretty interesting, all of that, uh, with songs and dances, of course. So um, these movies attest to the fact that while Shakespeare did arrive as a foreigner in India, he's now very much a naturalized citizen, um, and that Bollywood has had a huge role to play in this settlement. So we decided 
that it was high time that Indian Shakespeare adaptations received the kind of attention that Michael Fassbender's Macbeth received recently. Luckily, the BFI agreed with us and gave us a prime weekend slot for the Indian Shakespeare trilogy. Excited as I am, I'm also feeling very responsible towards these films. I can't help wondering what might be the best way of showcasing them. How can we do justice to these films? So in a bid for some answers, I wanted a test audience, so I use my students. This year, the students in my Shakespeare courses are primarily from the UK and US. Although they welcomed a chance to see Bollywood Shakespeare adaptations, they do not speak the language, nor did they have any extensive knowledge of the culture, but they were excited about it. So I'm now going to share some of the findings of my test audience. The first clip that I showed my students and the one that I'm going to show you is from a movie called Golionki Ras Lila Ram Lila, such a tongue twister of a name, so henceforth I'm just going to call it Ram Lila. This is a Bollywood adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. In the song, which I will play in a second, Romeo makes his first entry. And so, have a look. I'll stop him there. Um, I've seen this video so many times now. Um, obviously, for, for, for purely research purposes. Um, so, after, after seeing this clip, all of my students agreed that this portrayal of Romeo was very different to the Romeo <laughs> that they have come to expect. They expected someone more broody, more sulking, um, someone rather more romantic. Um, instead, this Romeo, they noted, seemed like a womanizer. Yes. <laughs> One of them pointed out that although different, this portrayal did allow for the transformation which occurs in Romeo in Shakespeare's play. So when we first meet Romeo in Shakespeare's play, as we all know, he is in love with Rosaline and appears more in love with the idea of love. And then Juliet's love transforms him into a true and genuine lover. The students noted that this Romeo had the potential to go from a playboy to an ardent lover after meeting Juliet. However, they found him to be rather too earthy, too confident. Um, my students were not the only ones to draw these conclusions. David Shute, reviewer of the US edition of Variety magazine, uh, thought that the actors were simply, and I'm quoting him now, he said, they're too down-to-earth, too level-headed to be convincingly star-crossed, end quote. What was lost on the students and Variety's reviewer alike is that the protagonist is named Ram, which is also the name of a Hindu god. And if you see in the background, these are the images of the Hindu god, Ram. Um, so they didn't know that. Uh, moreover, as we have seen, that when Ram or Romeo bursts upon the screen uh, for the first time, he launches into a ludicrous, but I think rivetingly ludicrous, uh, dance number with hundreds of extras. Now, some of these extras are dressed as monkeys. Here we go. Look at them. Hmm? Um, 
According to Hindu mythology, again, an army of monkeys led by the powerful monkey god Hanuman were ardent devotees of the Hindu god Ram. So by referencing Hanuman in this song, and constantly you will see him surrounded by these kind of, you know, uh, monkey gods. So by referencing Hanuman in this song, the movie invites us to make links between the god Ram and his namesake in the movie. According to Ramayana, a central Hindu text, everything that happens in Ram's life, including his love and marriage to Sita, is his destiny. So he was predestined to kill the demon king Ravan and restore peace. So everything happens because he was bound to fulfill this destiny. So once this connection is made in the movie between Ram and Romeo, the idea of destiny and being star-crossed can be appreciated. So everything that happens in this Romeo's life too is his destiny. He will have to fulfill that destiny to restore peace. Now, lest this seem like a one-off instance, the next clip which I'm about to show you, and again, which I presented to my students, is from the movie Makbul, a Hindi-Urdu adaptation of Macbeth. This is one we are going to screen. Again, this is the opening scene, and as in the play, it begins with the witches. And as I play this one, I'm sorry, but I'll have to do a little bit of commentary, and um, I'm not going to translate word by word, but I'm going to tell you what's going on. And this is because I wanted a DVD with um, English subtitles, and I was in India, and I asked this DVD shopkeeper, and I said to him, you know, I want one with subtitles. Are you sure you're giving me one with subtitles? And he said, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, of course I am. But obviously, he gave me one with Hindi subtitles for a Hindi movie. So that wasn't very helpful. I'm going to uh, have to provide some commentary as I play this for you. Obviously, that doesn't require any translation. He predicts that Macbeth will be king hereafter. Um, in these clips, the students were surprised by the interpretation of the witches because they are both men instead of the women witches that they were expecting. Um, the students found the gender swap uh, really interesting because they observed that having male witches meant that they were aligned more closely with Macbeth and Banquo than with Lady Macbeth. And they were curious to see how this changed the gender politics of the play. However, they were disappointed to note that there was nothing supernatural, mysterious, or otherworldly about these cop witches. They claimed that the audience was robbed of the intrigue of whether Macbeth believed the witches because they seemed to know more than mortal beings, um, or whether he wanted to believe them as he was ambitious. Again, my students are not the only ones who interpreted these cop witches as no more than that. In Screen International, Peter Brunette reviewed the film when it was first premiered at Toronto Film Festival. Given the movie a very positive review, he writes, and I'm quoting him, Bhartwaj is smart enough to leave in his melodrama and bloodlust with comic relief here provided by two corrupt police officers. End quote. What was not apparent to the students and to Brunette was that the police officers are shown casting nativity charts or kundalis in every scene. And here we go. These are the kundalis. Um, so this is like a birth horoscope or a kundali of a person is believed to be the map of heavens at the time of birth. 
Astrologers in India regularly cast and re read these charts as Akuntali indicates what a person's course of life is likely to be. And this is very common. Like, I'm not even religious. My parents are not, but uh, my nativity chart was cast when I was born. Um, strangely enough, it predicted that I'm going to be living overseas. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Kundalis predict uh, whether, uh, you know, something is uh, on the cards for you or not. Once this information is available, so once we know that they are casting Kundalis, it is easy to see the supernatural element of the cop witches. Uh, the cops may look like regular men, but are witch-like in their ability to predict the future based on reading planetary alignments. So my question really is that in both movies, the Shakespearean complexity was only evident to my students once some cultural knowledge had been provided. Now, by no means am I suggesting that Anglophone audiences may not have such knowledge. Some of them have devoted their entire careers to Hindu mythology. Uh, but the reviewers I quoted, and there, there are plenty such reviews, demonstrate that the average moviegoers and the specialists alike did not have access to the cultural codes in operation and were not able to truly appreciate the quality or the ingenuity of the adaptation. Sometimes Shakespeare can act as a bridge between the Bollywood movie and the Anglophone uh, cinema goer. But Shakespeare adaptations are also judged fiercely in a global market. So my questions are, are the more indigenous adaptations then bound to fail or at least remain underappreciated in a transnational setting? And how much cultural acumen is required to profitably enjoy and appreciate these productions? How can we enhance audience experience without patronizing them? And how can we ensure that requisite information is available for people reviewing and critiquing these movies and productions? So as someone preparing to host an event in April showcasing these movies, I'm thinking about these questions a lot. And I would really appreciate your help and suggestions with that. Thank you. I think we would all agree that that's not quite the video that we have experienced before. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio may have just lost the Oscar. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, please welcome Ben Crystal. Um, ben and I were at a big Shakespeare conference in Notre Dame, Indiana, a couple of weeks ago, and I think that that's representative of the fact that Shakespeare is everywhere this year, and so we're all coalescing in different places. He's the artistic director of Passion and Practice and its Shakespeare Ensemble. He was co-writer of Shakespeare's Words and the Shakespeare Miscellany with his father, David Crystal. His first solo book, Shakespeare on Toast, Getting a Taste for the Bard, was shortlisted for the 2010 Educational Writer of the Year Award. His latest book, which will be available at the table, is an illustrated dictionary of Shakespeare. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, hello. Uh, I think I've got to stand by this because um, I could try with that. I feel a little bit like I'm going to be sort of turning into a, a wedding's master of ceremonies. Um, hello. Um, so um, I started my Shakespeare journey um, hating Shakespeare. Um, and and 
in the classroom, basically. Um, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't respond to the way that it was taught, essentially on the page rather than, than on the stage. And it wasn't until I acted Shakespeare for the first time when I was um, 17 that I suddenly discovered a, a, a love for um, his works, um, when acting them anyway. Um, but I grew up um, around a lot of people who didn't like Shakespeare in this country um, and started running, um, going in, into schools when I left drama school and uh, meeting a lot of uh, younglings, a lot of high school students and primary school students. Um, and the general atmosphere was one of fear. Um, general sort of um, burden younger on um, and, and later on, once, once they'd sort of, the students had heard the phrase iambic pentameter, you'd sort of lost them. Um, and I found myself... Uh, trying to find ways to make these um, literary critical terms like iambic pentameter and so on and so forth more palatable and more easy to understand. And I found um, that uh, looking at Shakespeare's works through the, the, the somewhat rose-tinted um, glasses, although very uh, poverty-stricken glasses of, of, of the world of the theatre and, and, and of an actor, um, it started to make uh, a lot more sense. Um, and... Then I started to um, go and see um, more European Shakespeare, more international Shakespeare. Um, I remember a very bonkers Merry Wives of Windsor in Bratislava, um, which was just a mad pantomime. And I remember falling in love with Pericles for the first time when I saw it in Japanese um, and starting to really appreciate um, uh, the, 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 the global Shakespeare, I suppose. That was my first real sense of it. Um, and then um, uh, under the first ten years of, of the Shakespeare's Globe, under Mark Rylance, uh, they would have uh, a, a guest company, a bit like they did in the Globe a couple of years ago with the Globe to Globe, when they had every play from the canon and some of the poems, I think, uh, performed by an international company that came. Well, they used to have a, a visiting company or two, and, and they had wonderful things like a Zulu Macbeth um, and a Kat Carly King Lear. And um, uh, so, so I started to get the impression that um, there didn't seem to be, at least amongst the younger, the next generation of potential Shakespeare lovers, there wasn't so much of pa uh, a passion for Shakespeare here on these shores. But seeing these international companies coming over, or, or my going to them, and then starting to teach and uh, work with companies and, and, and students around the world, discovering this great passion for Shakespeare... Um, but yet oftentimes no ownership. Um, that we uh, in the UK, um, he's here, he's part of our cultural heritage, like the slides that Andy was showing, you know, he's, he's imbued sort of everywhere, um, and, and, and nary a sort of uh, a bookmark or a mug uh, in a shop in Stratford-on-Avon, or even, you know, uh, uh, throw a stone at a news line, um, to cut taxes or not to cut taxes. I mean, it's Shakespeare, right? Uh, to unfriend someone is not too far away from unshout the noise that Mar uh, Coriolanus made or whatever. I mean, you know, he is everywhere in our culture. And yet, you, I, 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 I was on a, a street in Bristol a couple of years ago um, uh, talking to anyone that would, <laughs> that, would, that would talk to me. There was a camera crew as well. I wasn't just wandering around. <laughs> Um, and, and sort of finding out what people, uh, what Shakespeare meant to people over here. And it didn't seem to, it was sort of like, yeah, it was just, it was there, and, uh, but no sort of opportunity to go, and why would we go necessarily? Um, that it's high art. That there's, the, the, you know, that eternal question of whether Shakespeare's relevant to, to, to people anymore. Um, 
So, so a sort of, uh, we have it, but we don't particularly want it. And then anywhere apart from these shores, uh, we, we don't have it. We want it very much. And we, but we don't necessarily have the right accent to be able to speak it. This idea that in order to do Shakespeare, you um, essentially have to sound like Laurence Olivier um, in order to, to be taken seriously. Which is, you know, and, and if you haven't seen some of the films um, that Vasha was talking about, Ankara and McBool, are, are wonderful. I've got Haida sitting on my desk waiting for me to watch it at some point. Um, so, uh, and travelling around America, especially the younglings, they think, well, you know, um, we, we, we have to speak... Uh, we have to get rid of our regional American accent. We have to speak good American. And the same thing still happens over here. Um, if you go to a drama school to study Shakespeare, they will ask you to, uh, to, to remove your regional accent and speak in received pronunciation, the accent of Olivia, in order to... They, they say that if you want to get hired to do Shakespeare, this is, what you, this is the sound you have to make. And it's kind of curious that we have decided that this... That the, you know, essentially the bastion of our, of our art... Uh, that we're exporting all the time, or that has now been sort of claimed literally around the world, is associated, or has to be associated, with a particular sound, especially a sound that's only been around for 200 years. Um, and and uh, one of the things that my company and I have been, have been doing, and we're a, an international ensemble, so there are members from all around the world. We try to imagine the kind of ensemble of, of Shakespearean actors that Shakespeare himself might have tried to form today without the restrictions of the Elizabethan society and the puritanical regime that came in and that kind of thing. Um, and one of the things that we do is we look at original practices, um, and one of the original practices that we've been looking at recently at the Wanamaker Playhouse at the Globe, and we're going to be going to uh, Savannah next month um, with, with, with Pericles, funnily enough, um, is, is the accent of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's accent, the accent of his actors, uh, which has been called original pronunciation. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know, it's quite a good name, isn't it? <laughs> it's never gotten a laugh before, but brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's not my um, academic or scholarly work, it's my father's. My, my father, David Crystal, as the linguist, was asked to become the master of pronunciation at the Shakespeare's Globe uh, about ten years ago. Um, and they dipped their toe um, in the water. They didn't do full productions because they were worried that people wouldn't understand it. Indeed, I, did, uh, I played Hamlet in uh, Reno, Nevada, of all places, uh, a couple of years ago. No, it wasn't set in a casino. Um, and the first thing that people said when they came up to us was, was, surely it's just going to sound like my high school A-level teacher trying to read Chaucer. You know, really impenetrable and, and, and just awful. Um, and it doesn't. And if anything, uh, the observation from the master of movement at the Globe, the woman that's in charge of helping all the actors, you know, move nice. Because if there was one thing that I didn't like growing up watching Shakespeare um, in the, the yearly pilgrimage I made to Stratford was that it would be wonderful to see the actors, you know, speak this beautiful, beautiful sound, but they wouldn't ever move. And then I'd go to see companies like Complicite and Frantic Assembly who would be doing this most amazing physical work. And I thought, well, maybe we could combine the two together. And then the Master of Movement at the Globe said, uh, having watched all the actors rehearse the main part of the, 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 the run in received pronunciation, stepped into an original pronunciation rehearsal and said, my goodness, they're moving differently. And I thought, oh, no, no, I'm interested, because if there is a way to harness both wonderful physicality and wonderful verse speaking at the same time, and it's not authentic, because we're not try striving for authenticity, but and it's an original practice or inspired by the practice of 400 years ago, much like playing at the Globe or much like using the first folio as an original text, surely it could be an advantage to us. Um, 
Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a little bit um, so you can sort of see what I'm talking about. Um, the uh, sonnet uh, that you've probably heard an awful lot uh, at, at weddings because it's got the word marriage in it, um, which uh, be- uh, in, in received pronunciation now uh, begins, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh, no. It is an ever-fixed mark which looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering, uh, wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a lovely sonnet, it's a lovely piece, um, and, and, you know, the, there is something wonderful about the sound of received pronunciation, and there are just different qualities about original pronunciation that do um, help uh, the performance or the speaking of Shakespeare. For example, um, sonnets are supposed to end with a rhyming couplet. If this be Aaron upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Is a bit of a fail. Um, <laughs> Uh, and either a fail on Shakespeare's part or um, a change in, in the sound. And um, we, uh, we, we, you know, we can, that's one of the reasons why we can work out what the accent of Shakespeare might have been like. We know that it had to have been either proved and loved or louved and proved. And we, we know, we absolutely know categorically that the only person that's ever elongated the vowel of loved uh, to louve was Elvis. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> Although it's sort of true. Um, so we know it was loved and proved. Um, and uh, hang on a second, I'm going to put the... Down for a second. Um, I'm taking my jumper off, partly so you can sort of see what it, um, what it does uh, to me. Um, and not like that. <laughs> I mean, it's Saturday Romeo. night, but it's clean. It's no, 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 no. Um, uh, and what accents does it remind you of? That's the, that's the main thing that I want to, you, you to respond back to. And also, you know, notice what it does to me. Um, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark which looks on tempests but is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown although his height be taken. Love's not times full, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle compass come. Love alters not with his brave oars and wakes, but bears it out into the edge of dumb. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man e'er loved. Um, and <laughs> um, thank you. Um, so, but the thing that I'm interested in about it, apart from the physicality, which we can talk about later if you like, um, or just come and see one of our things, um, is. Um, you, what accents does it remind you of? Western. Yep. Irish. Yep, West Country, Irish. West Country, Scottish, Irish. Say the accent you don't want to say because you think you're going to be wrong. Yep, pirate. That's what happens whenever I go into schools. I mean, of course it's not on the curriculum. That's a different story. Don't start me on the curriculum now. But when um, you go to kids and you say, what accent does it remind you of? And they go, Pirates of the Caribbean! <laughs> And you think, thank you, Johnny Depp, you're sort of spreading the word of the bard for us. Um, I've had people say Australian. 
I've had some people say American and all different parts of America and Irish and, and, and Norfolk. And the thing is that everybody's right because people came from Norfolk and Wales and Ireland and Somerset and whatnot. And they came to London and their accents all moved together and, and spilled together. And then, of course, the accents went to Bristol and got, uh, you know, went across the water to America and later on got sent down to the Antipodes. And that's sort of where, you know, so original pronunciation is essentially the accent godfather. Um, of, of, of what the accent we're speaking now. What that means is that rather um, giving the idea that Shakespeare, um, from its home, I suppose, uh, needs to be spoken in a particular way in order to be right, um, it, it, the, when you speak Shakespeare in original pronunciation, um, the audiences tend to say, oh, it sounds like where I come from a lot of the time. And then you've got an ownership in the heart of the audiences that are seeing it because it reminds them of something familiar. But you've also got an ownership in the actors because instead of all 20 actors or whatever, or if we were all to form a Shakespeare company now and we all learnt original pronunciation, then our original pronunciation would all be 90% right because, quite frankly, 90% right is all we can really do, which isn't bad for 400 years, but still. And the last 10%, you'd fill in with your own natural regional accent. So my OP sounds OP and then all of my life history, Lancaster and Wales and London and transatlanticism and all these other things, and yours would be too. So there's a wonderful movement that's happening, a, a claiming of Shakespeare going on around the world, and it's starting over here now too. The interest in original pronunciation has been all over the world apart from these shores because we know how we do Shakespeare over here and there's a very solid audience for that. But the next generation of Shakespeare are looking, seem to be looking for a sound that they can call theirs, that we can, so we can all call Shakespeare ours, I suppose. Um, and that's, that's the global Shakespeare that I've been looking at, I suppose, the global Shakespeare that will keep him alive in the hearts of the next generation of Shakespeare lovers. Thank you. Thank you to all of our speakers. Um, that's been a really interesting overview of a lot of material, so a lot to digest and, and respond to. I'd like to start with a question, and then I'll open it up to the floor for a question. Uh, one of the things that we all unfortunately are aware of is that American politics are completely insane. <laughs> and. One of the things that um, recently struck me as being even more insane than usual, which is saying quite a bit, um, I do a lot of work with a group who's originally from the Republic of Georgia. It's the Synetic Theater Company based in Washington, D.C., and they win awards all the time, and they're really quite extraordinary. They have do a series of wordless Shakespeare. When they first came out, they talked about it being silent, and it really isn't silent because there's lots of sound effects and there's lots of music and such. Last summer, the Wall Street Journal, which is a, the bastion of, of business news in America, and Fox News which is famous for being Fox News, <laughs> both came out vilifying Synetic Theater, absolutely making scathing comments about them, that they should not exist because silent Shakespeare meant it's not Shakespeare. 
And one of the more um, interesting claims was that they thought the National Endowment for the Arts had funded them because their productions were shorter than they would be if they included all of the words, and that this was a sign of just how bad it was. So it does seem that in the different things from uh, original pronunciation to the performances that Andy talks about in his book, certainly to the Bollywood productions, you're getting something very different from what we have historically believed is Shakespeare. So how, how do you respond to that in terms of the differences, whether it's in pronunciation or vocabulary or absence? You know, when the Globe to Globe Festival was here, as you may recall, all of the theater companies were, were required to present in a language other than English. And some of the companies actually in their home countries did present in English but they were told they could not hear, except if you were the Q brothers, you could do hip-hop, which apparently is a whole different language altogether. <laughs> but anyway, how, how do, where is it Shakespeare? Where is it not? How do you respond to that? Um, I'll kind of begin by observing what is Shakespeare, um, because um, Shakespeare nowadays is Shakespeare's plays, of course, but also a global brand. And one of the things that uh, I'm kind of um, very wary of, but also celebrate in a way, is that one can use Shakespeare. For better or for worse, we have this absolute, uh, you know, kind of uh, Shakespeare brand available. And now what different cultures can do, so for example, in India, is now showcase their culture through Shakespeare. So a reverse sort of process is happening. So Shakespeare was taken to India and the local cultures such as Ramlila and the local customs were being suppressed. And now, at least in terms of India, you'll see a lot of movies uh, taking Shakespeare and then using it to display and exhibit their arts, such as, you know, indigenous arts, Ramlila and so on. So um, then they would uh, kind of take on Shakespeare's plays, but indigenize it completely, have the ownership, as it were, uh, much more kind of feel at home with this is our Shakespeare and so on. So there's that element to it too, you know, the part of it being a global brand and using it for selling. But at the same time, uh, so for example, Vishar Bhartwaj's uh, translations are pretty close to uh, the original Shakespeare language. So although a different language, you can still enjoy uh, the wordplay of Shakespeare, for example. Um, uh, the Romeo and Juliet that I was showing is much more an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet plus West Side Story plus Romeo plus Juliet. So in terms of uh, where Shakespeare is in that is, is um, we don't know, uh, but also you can find him in terms of phrase languages or, for example, multiplying frames is something which is a very Shakespearean technique, which Ramlila, the one I was showing you, does quite a lot. So they would either take words from him or techniques from him and so on and so forth. So you can find Shakespeare there. Okay, thank you. 
I think it's a, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? Um, to me, it's a question about authenticity. I mean, I kind of kept thinking about this as I was on my travels and doing research and talking to people. And I suppose what I think I came back with was a sort of sense that we were a bit obsessed by authenticity in this country, you know, whether it's sort of geographical authenticity. You know, I went to the Birthplace Trust in Stratford the other week for a, a BBC project that I'm doing, and, you, you know, you're walking around the house. And, I mean, it's I, I have nothing against Shakespeare's birthplace, but it has nothing to do with Shakespeare for me. I can't, I mean, you know, it's it's the building is there, the fabric is there, but, you know, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't feel very much what Shakespeare means, to me, anyway. Um, but, of course, it's a huge kind of part, and, and as you're saying, Varsha, it's, you know, kind of, it's a, it's a part of the, of the Shakespeare brand and of Stratford's brand. I think I came back with a much more elastic sense of what authenticity might mean, that if you think of Shakespeare as being a writer who is, of course, using pre-existing sources, um, many of which, by the way, he's working with in French and Italian, so working with you know his own linguistic abilities or, or Latin or Greek, doing his own kinds of translations, then working them into texts, plays, scripts, which are themselves, as we understand more and more, not set, not fixed. You know, there are three different printed versions of Hamlet, all of which are quite different in some respects, particularly the first quarto, which is, uh, has what the famous lines, to be or not to be, I, there's the point. Um, used to be called a bad quarto, but actually it's quite an interesting quarto, I think, in terms of like, how it might capture what a performance of that play was. Um, so you have those texts, you have the fact that they are being altered in performance. Of course, theatre is something which is altering every single time you see it, isn't it? It's, it isn't something that's fixed or set. And then, of course, you have adaptations happening... As soon as, as, even when Shakespeare is alive, as soon as he dies, the text of Macbeth is almost certainly adapted after his death or close to his death by Thomas Middleton. So uh, what I guess I, I'm interested in is actually, well, sort of when you really start to look at it, what does authenticity mean? Actually, um, it doesn't quite exist in maybe the simple ways we sort of imagine it does here. And then, of course, there is the cultural story of it. Shakespeare is also the 400-year history. Shakespeare is is Garrick's version of of The Taming of the True, Catherine Petruchio. It's the crazy versions that I was reading about in the Wild West. It's the Bollywood adaptations. It's all of these different things. And I, I, I suppose I sort of think that actually Shakespeare is, is a very, very flexible brand. We've used that word. And I sort of feel if you, if you say it's Shakespeare, then it kind of is Shakespeare at some level because you're invoking a set of cultural questions and assumptions around it. And then you're asking an audience... Do you think it's Shakespeare? And that, to me, strikes me as the interesting dynamic. It isn't sort of saying that this is this is authentic and this is inauthentic. It's much more fluid, I think. Of course, next week at the Barbican, we've got Shakespeare being done with um, mustard and ketchup containers. So that that would be an interesting test to that. Did you have a... <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, Shakespeare is uh, like Teflon. He's Teflonic. You can't. You can throw anything you like at him, and. He just, it will bounce off, you know. I mean, there isn't a Beckett Foundation, thank goodness, chasing around, an equivalent, chasing around the world, making sure that, you know, every full stop and line is, is adhered to. Um, they, the, 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 the extant text of Hamlet as the Branagh film is, is essentially about four hours long. There's no reason to suggest at all that, like, that Shakespeare's company would have staged a four-hour production. They probably, most likely, would have cut the best two hours traffic of the, of the stage. Um, Shakespeare is wonderfully um, adaptational, I suppose. Is that the right word? I don't know. You can adapt, you can do anything you like with him, and so you should. Um, I think you know. There's, there, I've seen some really crazy productions, like Calixto Bielto's Catalan Shakespeare is completely insane. Um, 
Absolutely, there should be silent Shakespeare and it still be Shakespeare. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think the modern uh, translations into modern English that uh, uh, certainly have their place uh, in students' hands um, an awful lot of the time um, are, are a bit dangerous um, because if you're trying to do Shakespeare, I suppose, then it isn't what he says necessarily is the way that he says it. And moving away from his words, if you're going to move away from them, then take a big leap, I suppose, um, and um, and make him tell, use him as as you know. It's one of the things I really like about your book, Andy. It, you, over here, because of our 21st, 20th century attitudes being applied to Shakespeare so much, we're losing some of the plays. You know, we think a lot of people think that Taming the Shoe is an anti-feminist play, that Merchant of Venice is an anti-Semitic play, and, and Othello is a racist play, and and you know we we are starting to lose these these works because we're not being too careful enough to to go back and and understand them in their own context, sort of thing, and we have no idea um, well unless you read his book about how for example King Lear is received and what it means to South Africans or what, how the Tempest plays over in in China and what the relevance of, of those plays are and how they're being embraced around the world um, but as long as we carry on you know being rough with Shakespeare and not being too careful with him um, I think he's going to you know it's, then anything can be it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing sorry just to, to kind of follow on from that because I, I think that you know, various people have asked me why is Shakespeare in all of these places you know why is Shakespeare in so many different languages and so many different contexts and cultures and I think there isn't a simple answer but I think a lot of it I mean of course there is the history of colonialism the British Empire and the way that it exported those texts and education in India there are reasons to do with trade and commerce as to do with kind of national identity Germany's appropriation of Shakespeare particularly in the 19th century is Unser Shakespeare our Shakespeare is, is a way of unifying German culture and that's why Shakespeare gets installed as a sort of honorary figure there but I think it's also exactly as you're saying Ben it's, it's, it's about the flexibility of, of the texts the fact that you can take them to pieces and put them back together again or miss out sections or add sections or play around with them or reinterpret them and they still they still work. And, then, you know, remember all of us recently about Benedict Cumberbatch and Hamlet, about, you know, whether to relocate to be or not to be, whether to do it at the beginning of the text or not. And it was like, I, I, you know, when that news story, that news story broke, um, <laughs> of course, nothing to do with the PRs at all, uh, promoting the show, um, uh, I sort of held my head in my hands. I thought that Britain is the only country that would get wound up about that. You know, the fact that, I mean, we have no idea where... I mean, precisely what Shakespeare's company would have done, whether indeed they had that speech, you know, and the way that now we have to watch this play so often in English, and you're waiting for it, aren't you? You're waiting for that moment. So I thought actually it was a rather interesting idea to kind of move it to the beginning of the play. I'm keeping my mouth shut because I wrote a piece about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which you can read online. It's in The Independent, not The Guardian, sadly. (laughs) But, um, yeah. um, And... um... If you see Header, you'll know that uh, the speech is uttered, but it's also relocated to another point where it gets a huge laugh. So yeah. that's yeah. that's, uh, and you'd be happy with the fact that they're playing about with it much yeah. more. I mean, I yeah. saw a German production, Thomas Dostermeyer Tom oh, version, yeah. that was, which was kind of astonishing. And I think they, that speech appeared three times in the course of the play, mm-hmm. as I recall. Um, and I suppose that's you know, which to me seemed a very interesting meditation on the way that that speech works as a separate piece of text and as come down in culture in all sorts of ways but I think yeah I mean we are I think often so uptight in this country aren't we about what's what's not everybody fortunately but the big institutions 
and um, the big companies are still very, very, I think, wound up about this question of authenticity. Well, I did see, I have to say that on the one hand, I agree with you, and on the other hand, I did see what I thought was the worst Shakespeare ever. There was a Shakespeare festival going on in Washington, D.C., and I think there was a company that they were presenting towards the end of the festival, and so they needed to do something to differentiate themselves. And they decided that what they would do, as you would expect, is they would do a naked Macbeth. And not only did they do a naked Macbeth, but as soon as the cast was chosen, they were told that they were not allowed to go to the gym and they were not allowed to shave or cut their hair. So you had a naked, flabby, hairy Macbeth. And Something I, wicked this way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yes, I'm sure you could. They did it. I saw it, but I would not recommend it to you. Um, we'll now open the, the floor to questions from the audience. What we would like is if you would be identify yourself by name and any affiliation and wait for the, um, the mic. So we've got a hand right at the back, and then we'll get back up to the front. Yes, uh, D- David um, there's a book that just came out called Living in Tudor Times, and the woman uh, apparently said she was very popular with um, Shakespeare actors because she would tell them how to move uh, wearing clothes um, that, uh, that were relevant, and also this region accent and things like that. And it strikes me uh, as a way of deconstructing Shakespeare and getting Laurence Olivia off your back. This um, this sounds like a wonderful book on the face of it. She was very articulate. I haven't seen it. I don't. Mm-hmm. Another book for us all to watch out for. <laughs> we have we have a hand here at the front, and then we'll get back again. Thank you very much. I'm Heide Rida from Bain and Company. Um, tonight we spoke a lot about the global Shakespeare. And it's true that a lot of his ideas are very global, and his views on justice or freedom could have been Persian or South American or, or, or French. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask your views on the English Shakespeare. So what about Shakespeare is actually English? So obviously the language he wrote in and a lot of his plays, their setting is, is quintessentially English. But imagine he would have been French or German or, or, or Indian, what in his views would have been different and in the way that these views and, and ideas spread throughout the world would have been different, according to you? Thank you. That's a really, That's a really nice it's, question. It's a good question. Um, it's, it's a fascinating counterfactual, isn't it? What would the, yeah, the Indian Shakespeare look like? I think it, that the Indian Shakespeare would look like Indian Shakespeare, actually. I mean, that's the, the way that, you know, you were talking so eloquently about the way that the plays have, have been transplanted into all of these different settings. I would take issue, if, if I may, with you, you know, this, this kind of idea of this sort of quintessential Englishness of, of the plays. There's only one play of Shakespeare's that is set from first to last in an Elizabethan England. Does anyone know which play it is? Very Wise of Windsor, yes. Yeah, very, very educated. <laughs> Get a better class of audience at the LSE. Um, normal people are like, oh, as you like it um, exactly it's Mary Wives of Windsor I mean the, the, the other plays are kind of set in England aren't they because they're versions so you think of I don't know Measure for Measure it's notionally set in Vienna but it's also obviously kind of Jacobean London um, you think of Cymbeline yeah exactly but of course it's sort of set historically you know far far in the distant past so I think that's the, the question that I'm interested by is actually, actually is there that much that is specifically English about Shakespeare's plays the English histories very much so of course they're about English history but that's sort of you know you think that's what total eight plays over 
maybe you could say nine plays, um, mainly written in the 1590s. Actually, sort of three quarters of Shakespeare's writing career, he's thinking about different places and he's thinking about different locations and different cultures. And you think of a play like The Tempest, for instance, a famous example, but where is that play set? Well, it's kind of in the Mediterranean, probably, isn't it? That's probably where Prospero's Island is, because the wedding party who were shipwrecked in the Tempest are coming back from Tunis, from Tunisia, and they're heading back to to Milan, eventually. Um, Shakespeare seems to think that Milan is on a coast, but we maybe don't have to get into that. Uh, His actual precise geography is a bit fluid. But then, of course, also, the the key source for that play is, is an account of a shipwreck in the Bermudas, uh, a ship that's on en route to Jamestown, a New English colony there. And so the play is sort of simultaneously in both of those places, I think. And this happens a lot in Shakespeare. You know, people do go on about his terrible sense of geography, the fact that, you know, there is a sea coast in The Winter's Tale in Bohemia, which is, of course, central Poland. Actually, I think that he's much cannier than that, as usual. Um, the, the plays are sort of located in all of these different places, sort of simultaneously. They sort of float around you know you can't exactly pin them down and you know there's this project isn't there this year to do the the complete walk i don't know if anyone's heard of this it's along the thames and they've taken out bits of the plays and they're sort of actors performing them in front of settings i mean it's i don't know it's, i suppose it's a kind of tourist thing in a in a way but you know most of venice isn't about venice <laughs> um it, it isn't about the geography of venice it's about five or six different places simultaneously and by the way i think that's another reason the plays have gone so far because actually they can be re- relocated anywhere because they are kind of located anywhere so i, I guess that that would be the only thing i would say i don't think there is that much that is specifically english about about Shakespeare. I think, if anything, he is a European writer, and I think we forget that a lot in this country. Um, We've got one um, more question at the back, because we're running low on time, so I want to make sure that... Yeah, back there. Yes, thanks. Uh, um, I I teach in philosophy and art, and I was first drawn back to Shakespeare after school. Um, um, from um, art and art theory and going into German, German philosophy. And um, interesting, we, we've mentioned this German, German connection. Um, and the Globe did a series called Shakespeare is German, which I think could probably better be put as Shakespeare's an ancient Greek and Roman, because it is German philosophy from Lessing, Schiller, Goethe, Hegel... Uh, Marx and Nietzsche and so forth, who so admired Shakespeare, are rooted in ancient (coughs) Greek and Roman thought. And that's what we see um, streaming through Shakespeare. Um, The embattled critic Hazlitt said, uh, uh, has been quoted as saying, I've I've looked through his characters and seen a similar similar remark, Uh, Colin McGinn in uh, Shakespeare's philosophy, uh, Hazlitt, Shakespeare is as good uh, philosopher as he is a poet. Now, I'm wondering what's happened to some of the ideas here. We've talked a lot about performance, but there are very, very exciting ideas and deep learning, it seems. I've just come from the rewriting history uh, debate about this whole business of um, of each each, uh, generation and culture projecting itself upon the past. So we create gods and idols in the words of Xenophanes, uh, the pre-Socratic thinker, in our own likeness. And I'm wondering what the panel might have to say about the importance of recovering some of these crucial ideas. 
you know, because there is Renaissance critique here of what was coming up in the Enlightenment. You know, Enlightenment famously regresses into barbarism and myth, it, uh, Cartesian rationalism, empiricist positivism. They've ended up with the kind of problems that we have today, all the, the tyrannies of technocracy, bureaucracy, and anything goes relativism. Now, we can find in Shakespeare a whole lot of ancient Greek wisdoms and thinking that counter that that lead us away from the sort of problems that we have today. Have the panel something to say about Shakespeare as thinker? Well, I think that that is going to give us a lot to discuss while you're in the queue to get your book signed, which at the reception, which is about to begin, we've come to the conclusion of the literary festival. And again, there will be books available. And... um, I I think that you can speak about ancient Greeks in whatever language you like. One of the things I started with our mutual friend, Professor Amitabha Roy from Kolkata, and he is famous for saying Shakespeare is a Bengali. So I think that we are probably not going to be able to agree on Shakespeare's origins in, in one way or another. But please join me in thanking the panelists, and please join us for the reception.